0: Hello, I'm Sebastian Marshall, and this is the Ultra Working Podcast, and that is not a typo in the title of this episode. That is religio, the Latin word, and it's kind of like religion without the N on the end of it. That's exactly how it's spelled, and it doesn't denote organized religion. It's my word for one's personal orientation towards the world and what matters in the world, that it's almost axiomatic and tautological that you have one the way it's defined, we will look into that today. At the end of it, we're going to start by looking at some 1800s thought on the topic. Then we're going to look at some 2000s thought on the topic. We'll look at Carlisle and we'll look at Tegmark. So we've got a essayist, historian, uh, Victorian era type. And then we've got a modern physicist uh, at MIT, Max Tegmark, um, who's working on AI systems and looking at how intelligence comes together and emerges out of, out of particles. Um and then goals somehow emerging from those and, and things that matter. Uh, I thought about doing this. I thought about doing this without without sharing on on my own personal side. But when I scripted it out, it would it just seemed like it'd be less satisfying. So I'll weigh in briefly on what I think matters at the end. I'm not trying to convert nobody to nothing. I, you know, I, it's what I do. It's the standard I try to live up to. Um, when I wake up, it's something I come back to over and over again. But, uh, you know, I I love that that quote by Winston Churchill, a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. So I'll weigh in. Maybe it'll be interesting. I think the framework for how to think about it and the kind of origins and consciousness get built up and, you know, kind of how the the pieces all kind of fit together and line up and and really just thinking through this very clearly and logically, I think that's very valid and valuable thought to have universally. As for my own take on it, maybe it's interesting, maybe it's not. But that's what we're going to do. So... At UltraWorking, we've got the work gym, ultraworking.com slash TWG. We do live moderated work cycles in typically four-hour blocks, um, and it's pretty cool. Uh, you know, we work for 30 minutes, 10-minute break. We've got a structured interface and software that you use, plan out sessions and work. It's really remarkable. It gets ready reviews. Um, every... One out of every three breaks is what we call a moderator's break and a moderator can kind of pick whatever topic they want. What I typically do when I'm hosting work cycle sessions, uh, which I greatly enjoy doing, um, is I just see, hey, what do people need, what do people want? So typical, you know, questions and topics tend to be quite, quite technical. People want something about estimation um, or there's, you know, there's some, you know, particular thing, maybe somebody's, you know, bouncing back. They just had a case of COVID. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's like, I'm only a couple and, you know, caveat emptor, but sure, I can weigh in. I had a case of it. Here's what I did. It worked okay. And then here's what to do generally when you're compromised. Here's what we see works pretty well. So it's all enjoyable on the breaks. People are always welcome to skip uh, engaging with a moderator on the break and just take a break on the breaks, but the moderator's there. It's a good time. People like it. Got a question that's closer to a meaning of life type question recently. And I don't know, the answers seem to intrigue people. We don't do this all the time. This isn't what it's all about. We're not talking morality and such all the time. But got a question. We haven't uh, set our conventions yet. So about like checking with somebody. Do you want to get named and, and have what you're doing mentioned? Um, the woman who asked the question is super cool. She's doing some super cool stuff. Hey, shout out to you if you're listening. But um, I'll we'll figure out our conventions about crediting people or not. I want to check beforehand, but I want to record this while the thoughts were fresh. So was asked, what is the ultimate point of being more productive? And, you know, when I look at that, that's, that's pretty close to like, what is the point of being alive? Or what is the meaning of life type question? You know, it's very much in the same neighborhood, uh, uh, right next to each other. So I thought it'd be useful to go through how to think about that, how we decide what we're doing. Um, And, you know, as much as we can, just get a bunch of true stuff down, figure out, kind of what are some of the objective components of the decisions we make around this sort of thing before we come to our own answers and conclusions. Should get a little smarter, not promising any definitive answers. Eh, I'll share my take on it at the end, briefly. Um, But let's get into it. So, First off, one of my favorite works um, is On Heroes, Hero Worship and the Heroic in History by Thomas Carlyle, um, 1800s. Uh, Writer, Scottish, um, extremely popular in his era, like lionized all around the world. and just kind of held up as an example of a great writer, really fallen out of favor um, and, and has ceased to be read largely because he was like on the wrong side of every historical trend. Didn't like technology very much, was quite skeptical of technology, didn't like capitalism, didn't like democracy, like basically all the forces uh, that won um, he, he was not a fan of. Um, and it had all kinds of other Victorian ideas that we would be like, ooh, <laughs> uh, right? But I think when he's on, he's dead on right, and some of his just deep observations, um, and I think even people that really don't like him at all would, would acknowledge he's really just a first-class writer, his way with words is exceptional, so I, I like On Heroes a lot, some of the historical accuracy of things, when he looks at different historical figures and religious movements and, and, and military and political things, you know, it's like the 1800s, their historical methods weren't as good as a modern historian, he's close enough, it's not perfect, um, but I, I think it's delightful. Here's my most cited passage from the book, here's the one I share the most often. Carlisle, quote, it is well said in every sense that a man's religion is the chief fact with regard to him, a man's or a nation of men's. By religion, I do not mean here the church creed which he professes, the articles of faith which he will assign and in words or otherwise assert, not this holy, in many cases not this at all. We see men of all kinds of professed creeds attain to almost all degrees of worth or worthlessness under each or any of them. This is not what I call religion, this profession and assertion, which is often only a profession and assertion from the outworks of the man, from the mere argumentative region of him, if even so deep as that. But But the thing a man does practically believe, and this is often enough without asserting it even to himself, much less to others, the thing a man does practically lay to heart and know for certain Concerning his vital relations to this mysterious universe and his duty and destiny there, that is in all cases the primary thing for him and creatively determines all the rest. That is his religion. And Kylo goes on to say, or his skepticism and non-religion, right? So he's almost putting it axiomatically that, you know, how did he put it? The thing a man does practically believe, by man he means human, the thing a person does practically believe, and often enough without asserting it to oneself, much less to others, practically laid to heart and know for certain concerning one's vital relations to this mysterious universe and duty and destiny here. It's the primary thing and determines all the rest. And like, hey, I have no duties, or like it's just a big party, or it's like a, a, a clown show and it's absurdism. Those are also outlooks. Those are also what Carlisle calls religion. So he goes on along those lines and says skepticism, uncertainty, and inquiry, and so on and so forth. And looks at different types of religions. Was it Christianity? Was it heathen? Paganism and such. He goes through all that. And then he says, the thoughts they had were the parents of the action they did. Their feelings were parents of their thoughts. It was the unseen and spiritual in them that determined the outwards and actual. Their religion, as I said, was a great fact about them. So, um, I think that's true, but the word religion in 2022 almost always means organized religion. You say religion, you mean someone's, you know, a, you know part of the LDS, the Mormon church, or they're, you know, um, you know they're praying five times a day, they're Muslim, and they're going to the mosque on Friday. And Carlisle's saying, no, not quite, you know what I mean? Because you could nominally be in the same Organized religion as somebody else, but a very different beliefs, interpret differently, live it differently, and you might you might actually believe the religion you're a member of a congregation of, or, or might not actually believe and be out for something else. And as such, I use the Latin word, religio. There's a precedent for that. There was a a book similar era, religio medici, the religion of a doctor, Medici's doctor, um, in Latin, that an Englishman wrote about his. Personal interpretation of Christianity. So religio Medici is like hey, it's my religion, right? Religio Medici. So I, I use religio as the word about like, so what's up? You're in the universe. You got anything going on? What what what's the point of being here? And I don't know is an answer. And there is no point is an answer. So cool. That's your religio. There's no point to being here and no duties and nothing matters is religio just as much as devout Christian or so on, right? So that's. Interesting, and I think that's pretty much true. Carlyle goes through in, in, in the book on heroes, he explores where, where do these religions come from. It seems like groups of people tend to believe them together. Not everybody has their own exact individual thing. There's always people that do, but most people don't. They have groups of people that believe the same thing. His answer to that is, is what he calls a hero, sometimes called a Carlylean hero, which is, you know, that's like Confucius in China. He's like, cool, here's the foundations of a thought. And then people adopt it for a variety of reasons. Um, And so he goes into that. And yeah, it's a lovely book. It's a great read. So, sometimes people have a sense of what this is. And sometimes it's kind of murky, right? I think that's true. I think the religio point is true. I think it is one of the chief creative determinant facts about people. And uh, I also think for for groups of people um, that share the same religio. I think it matters a lot. Right, And again, religio not organized religion. It's what you actually really deeply believe. Um, and for some people, it's like, hey, I want to spread as much joy as possible. And for other people, it's like life is just a disaster that I need to get through day by day. And these really just affect all sorts of things about one's life and how one converses and what one chooses to do or not do and how one assesses risk. It is really profound implications on, on everything, really, uh, when you think about it. All right. But let's get a little more modern. So um, relatively much more recent book by Max Tegmark called Life 3.0. It's a book about artificial intelligence. Also a lovely book. First book I typically recommend um, to somebody that wants to learn about um, some of the elements of AI and, and why it might matter. He has this whole thing about goals, right? And, uh, you know, he starts off like this, right? He says, uh, let's first explore the ultimate origin of goals. When we look around the world, when we look around us in the world, quoting now, some processes strike us as goal-oriented while others don't. Consider, for example, the process of a soccer ball being kicked for the game-winning shot. The behavior of the ball itself does not appear goal-oriented and is most economically explained in terms of Newton's laws of motion as a reaction to the kick. The behavior of the player, on the other hand, is most economically explained, not mechanically, mechani- mechanistically, in terms of atoms pushing each other around, but in terms of her having the goal to maximize her team's score. How did such goal- oriented behavior emerge from the physics of our early universe, which consisted merely of a bunch of particles bouncing around seemingly without goals? Intriguingly, The ultimate roots of goal-oriented behavior can be found in the laws of physics themselves and manifest themselves even in simple processes that don't involve life. Super fun book, Life 3.0, by the way. So, Tegmark walks through a bunch of stuff. It's a long chapter. I'll give you the might be wrong. Should probably check the source material paraphrase, but I did reread it before making my notes here. Basically, seems to be a fundamental property of the universe. This is where I might be getting language wrong um uh entropy right so things break over time and don't spontaneously reform right that's that's entropy ice melts in absence of uh you know more heat reduction you know all it's being equal if ice is in a room it melts doesn't just spontaneously reform you drop a glass it breaks it doesn't reform back into being glass whatever entropy part of entropy right, Um, Tegmark's like, hey, nature's apparent goal is to create entropy, and and Tegmark said, and I had the exact same reaction, that he found it depressing when he first heard it, he checked other scientists like Lord Kelvin back in the 1800s when he was doing some theories on entropy, was like, this is so depressing, right, and entropy is just like a depressing thing, like uh, the whole thing is slow, everything is slowly falling apart, entropy, now, I feel the need to weigh in for a second here. It is by no means proven that entropy can't be reversed. I just have to say that, like, and if somebody's made a proof, then freaking show me a proof. It's a bunch of statistical observations, but show me a freaky proof. Until somebody nails down exactly where the stuff from the Big Bang came from, I'm not sure that there can't be another one, and furthermore, we've got billions of years to figure it out. So like, I'm not listening to this. We're guaranteed that the party end, but all right, I'm injecting my own take on that. But so Tegmark's depressed about entropy. I think uh, people looking into it often have that reaction. But then he says, but gravity, gravity works differently, right? He says gravity seems to have a quite unique, I don't know if property is the right word, unique property or unique place um, in the forces of the universe in physics. And um, he says, well, entropy is making the universe more uniform and boring. Entropy just flattens everything out. Everything just turns into the exact same Nothing, right? Gravity, on the other hand, is making it more, quote, clumpy and interesting. So Tegmark's like, hey, just when I was getting bummed out about entropy, I'm like, hey, gravity's pretty cool, though. So you got entropy is like breaking everything, but gravity is creating places where there's stuff and interesting stuff can happen in those places because of gravity. And then Tegmark flags energy dissipation, right? Um, And then dissipation-driven adaptation and then life. So turns out that people that can take energy and use it to move stuff around um, and do stuff with the energy that's useful, interesting, and novel seems to be, like, written into, this is Tagmark's hypothesis that I might be summarizing badly wrong as a non-physicist, but I think I'm within spitting distance, uh, that it's, like, built into the laws of the universe that particles can take energy and do stuff with it, and doing stuff with it lets them do more stuff, which then lets them do more stuff. So, like, the... Necessary preconditions to life were written into the laws of the universe, which kind of makes sense because there's life here and physics is a thing. And, you know, so that would make sense. I'm summarizing where I'm on solid ground. I'm quoting Tegmark and where it's like, what is this guy talking about? I'm a physicist. This is eh, this, That's all me. So, I'll you know, buyer beware. Um, but then, so Tegmark says, so hey, in biology, there's particles arranging themselves to use energy. And then those particle arrangements can make copies of themselves use more energy and they can use the energy to make copies of themselves and there you go i mean now we're probably at the doorsteps of life at that point but copying runs up against limits at some point there's space or energy limits um and then the particle formations compete with each other and the ones that are better at processing the energy efficiently moving around faster doing whatever you need to do as life um, go and thus darwinian evolution had begun right so quoting tag mark again to be bound back on solid ground so so right so we goals some stuff's goal directed others aren't that might be in the laws of physics themselves entropy flattening everything out creating entropy Depressing, but gravity, making things clumpy and interesting, energy dissipation. Dissipation Dissipation-driven adaptation, I think we can dissipate the energy, can use the energy to do stuff and dissipate it. Life, particle arrangements, copying themselves, copy runs against limits, evolution. Okay, now tech work. Quote, among today's evolved denizens of Earth, these instrumental goals seem to have taken on a life of their own. Although evolution optimized them for the sole goal of replication, many spend much of their time not producing offspring, but on activities such as sleeping, pursuing food, building homes, asserting dominance in fighting or helping others, sometimes even to an extent that reduces replication. Research in evolutionary psychology, economics, and artificial intelligence has elegantly explained why. Some economists used to model people as rational agents, idealized decision makers who always choose whatever action is optimal in pursuit of their goal. But this is obviously unrealistic. In practice, these agents have what Nobel laureate and AI pioneer Herbert Simon termed, quote, bounded rationality because they have limited resources. The rationality of their decisions is limited by their available information, their available time to think, and their available hardware with which to think. This means that when Darwinian evolution is optimizing an algorithm to attain a goal, the best it can do is implement an approximate algorithm that works reasonably well, in the restricted context where the agent typically finds itself. Evolution has implemented replication optimization in precisely this way. Rather than ask, in every situation which action will maximize an organism's number of successful offspring, it implements a hodgepodge of heuristic hacks, rules of thumb that usually work well. For most animals, these include sex drive, drinking when thirsty, eating when hungry, and avoiding things that taste bad or hurt. All right, then Techmark goes on to note that these rules of thumb often fail in situations they weren't designed to handle such as when rats eat delicious tasting rat poison etc all right so tegmark builds up from the physics of most of which is you know somewhat technical and i'm not going to just read tegmark so you know you can, you can look it up i recommend it life 3.0 great book um and then he gets into okay there's you know there's uh you know evolutionary competition and then bounded rationality all right then psychology the pursuit of and rebellion against goals a tag mark again quote in summary a living organism is an agent of bounded rationality that doesn't pursue a single goal but instead follows rules of thumb for what to pursue and avoid our human minds perceive these evolved rules of thumb as feelings which usually and often without us being aware of it guide our decision-making toward the ultimate goal of replication. Feelings of hunger and thirst protect us from starvation and dehydration. Feelings of pain protect us from damaging our bodies. Feelings of lust make us procreate. Feelings of love and compassion make us help other carriers of our genes and those who help them and so on. Guided by these feelings, our brains can quickly and efficiently decide what to do without having to subject every choice to a tedious analysis of its ultimate implications for how many descendants we'll produce. Okay... By the way, Tegmark goes back and forth between being like, wow, awe-inspiring great future, and like, hmm, mm, all right. But then Tegmark gets to the kicker. And I read this paragraph, and you know, you, it's really, you know, he builds up, right? From like, okay, in physics, right, there's like laws and there's entropy and there's gravity. Entropies work in one way, and gravity's to some extent work in the other There's energy dissipation, dissipation-driven adaptation in life, and particle arrangements using energy, and then copying themselves and Darwinian evolution and then bounded rationality, and then from there on to psychology. And then the kicker. Quote, Although such reward mechanism, hacks, sometimes go awry, such as when people get addicted to heroin, our human gene pool has thus far survived just fine, despite our crafty and rebellious brains. It's important to remember, however, that the ultimate authority is now our feelings, not our genes. This means that human behavior isn't strictly optimized for the survival of our species. In fact, since our feelings implement merely rules of thumb that aren't appropriate in all situations, human behavior, strictly speaking, doesn't have a single well-defined goal at all. Huh. <clears throat> well, wow. Yeah. I remember reading that, and I was like, whoa. It's important to remember, however, that the ultimate authority is now our feelings, not our genes. This means that human behavior isn't strictly optimized for the survival of our species. In fact, since our feelings implement merely rules of thumb that aren't appropriate in all situations, human behavior, strictly speaking, doesn't have a single well defined goal at all. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a head trip, isn't it? All right, I want to flag. I want to flag something very very interesting a lot of times we look back at people from past eras and we're like they were so unsophisticated compared to us moderns who are super sophisticated and like i don't know when i read aristotle and aristotle talks about you know some psychological phenomenon or how people work together cooperate it it reads just as correct as if somebody wrote it yesterday right um obviously you know his cosmology he didn't have microscopes he didn't have telescopes you know he didn't have a lot of things um, so certainly on the, the, the things where better technical instruments would help, we're further ahead. But when it comes to really understanding human nature, I, I, don't, I don't know how much we've really rigorously progressed. So, you know, Carlyle, right? You look at what Carlisle, he said. The thoughts they had were the parents of the actions they did. Their feelings were the parents of their thoughts. That's exactly what Tegmark is saying with like much more scientific grounding a couple of centuries later, right? It's important to remember, however, that the ultimate authority is now our feelings. (laughs) You know, right? In fact, since our feelings implement, you know, right? So, what do we make of this? Kind of annoyingly, Carlisle drops that bomb there. Strictly speaking, doesn't have a single well-defined goal at all. Then he switches into talking about AI again. And later he comes and looks at different ethical frameworks and things like that that we might adopt and he like looks at some of them and he's pretty open-minded about just like, hey, here's a list of things we could conceivably try and here's where some of them might fail. Um, but he's pretty open-minded about it. But uh, honestly, when, when, when marks on about ethics not applied artificial intelligence just in general I I don't think it's anything special it's not bad or anything he's a very very smart excellent writer but you know you go to the Stanford encyclopedia of philosophy and you look at their popular articles it's it's all it's just that right it's here's all the positions that you know someone's advanced at some point that seem even remotely plausible and and sometimes even slightly implausible ones are are in there Um, and you know people have been going back and forth about this forever so what do we do with this well I think there's a couple of things, right? So if you buy this argument that uh, uh, feelings are a major arbiter of, of, of conduct, which seems correct, then probably two things you're going to want to do. You're probably going to want to understand your own nature and the situations that you uh, do things in and, and, and why you perceive, interpret, and feel the ways you do. And it's, it's probably worth If you're intuitive, you probably already do this or think you do this. Uh, If you're analytical, I think probably the majority of people listening to the show are more leaning on the analytical side, though I have immense respect for people with really great instincts and intuition. I like people like that a lot, even though I'm hard on the other side of the equation. That, uh, you know, it's worth kind of studying this and and trying to understand what your, your base rates are. You know, some people are just like more excited than other people and like, how excited are you, right? Um, You probably already know, but it's worth sitting and thinking through that. How much does disorder bother you or annoy you? You probably already know, but you should think about that. And, you know, any kind of frameworks and structures you build on yourself should either be built on the way you naturally do things or you're committing, second point, to retraining as much as possible your instincts and your feelings to be in accordance with what you want, which is uh, very difficult and doesn't have like a super high success rate, but is totally doable. Is totally doable. It's just really, really hard. It's not to be done casually, right? So then what do we make of this, right? So, you know, again, in my first uh, scripting of the show, I'm like, hey, I'm just going to end here. Good luck, <laughs> right? And I just thought, oh, man, I just thought that would tick people off. I thought people want something. Like, here's my answer, which I'm not suggesting you adopt. It's just mine. Here's how I thought about it and what I decided to do. Um, and I'm so not preaching. It works okay for me. I like it. That's what I chose is the point of my life. Um, but you know, I'm not, I'm not like, here's the grand new school, like, no, like, this is, this is what I do, and it's, a uh, it's an answer I can live by, which is what I really like, it's not some, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, immeasurable thing, let's say, um, hard to measure, but conceptually, theoretically possible, so, you know, I thought about this a lot, and, um, I, I'd formulated my, uh, my what I, what I call morality or religio, um, I'd formulated that before I read Tagm. I read Tagm. I'm like, oh, this is man, he's really on it. This is some really good stuff. Um, you know, just the looking through the physical processes from entropy and gravity to particles using energy to bam 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 all the way through to competing for that in evolution, psychology, psychology and bounded rationality and heuristics and feelings. I I thought that was marvelous, marvelous read. Um, but I'd come up with this before then and this helped illustrate some points and helped me think about it but uh here's the answer that I came up with so I I, I don't know what the point of being alive is per se but I sat and I thought about it and here's here's the questions I asked for myself and you could you could play along and think about these these things as well I think it's uh I think I have not a bad answer to the question let's say um I don't think most people would adopt it no matter what but well, that's what I did so I thought about it and I said hey is there any right and wrong is there anything right and wrong? Is there any morality, right? Um, in the universe. And I think most people would say yes, and you know, like some edgy people would be like, There's totally no morality, dude. And to those people, I usually come back with like, okay, so if you're like walking down the street and you see somebody and you like want to just clock them and there's no chance of getting arrested or caught, and you know, you just think you'd have a delightful time, that's okay. You're the person like, no, that's wrong, you know, and then maybe they kind of dance around it, but they, they have some sense of right and wrong. Almost everybody does, right? Um, so I, I, happen to just think there's, some stuff's right and some stuff's wrong. Don't know which stuff and don't know how to prioritize between them, right? But I happen to think some stuff's right and wrong. And then there's a question of, like, is there a clean, very prescriptive, not much room for interpretation code? And this is where someone's devoutly a uh, member of an organized religion will have their answers, um, to these questions, especially if it's codified very well. I have immense respect for those people. I think it's great. Um, I have some friends that range from, yeah, basically communists from, you know, my time in, um, you know, in the nonprofit world and and, and developing world and not everybody in that space is like that. But there's some people that are very anarchic, very, very, very left. And I have some friends that are like devoutly, devoutly religious and and, and traditional religions. And, you know, I think there's just not enough great people in the world that are just really competent and good people that I don't don't really care what somebody's, uh, you know, stated affiliations are. If they're like a good person that you can do good things with. Right. And so, um, yeah, hey, if somebody's a member of an organized religion that's well codified and, like, that's the rules, just follow them, like, cool, I'm not arguing against that. But if you don't think that's true, and I searched, I did a bunch of theology reading and stuff, and like tried to look into it and tried to, like, look at the lineages and traditions and groundings of, of why any given religion would say that their thing is the right one. I actually seriously did a serious study into it for, for a little while, like a semi-serious study, let's say, and I don't know, I didn't find one of those de- definitively, like, the one that was like, okay, this is correct, this is bulletproof. All right, so if there's right and wrong, then you can push back on that and say, nope, it's totally not. like, okay, (laughs) I'm gonna be careful around you, but okay, right? And then no single code that you don't need to run without interpretation. For me, I look at it and I say, hey, if there's right and wrong, if there's anything is moral, anything is good and anything else is bad, right? Well, I would think, That, you know, like keeping the rainforests going is a nice thing. And I would think that people at school, kids that go to school, like learning better and having a better time learning is good. And, you know, I think generally speaking, you know, people, you know, being able to, if they get an infection, get medicine and cure it. I think these are like good things, right? So the question I ask myself is, hey, what's universally true here? And I thought about it. And for me, the answer was that if... If, if all intelligent and moral life went extinct, I don't think there would be any morality anymore. Now, I've talked about this with a few people. Usually just one-on-one. I'm not like a, hey, here's my thing guy, right? But when I talk about it people, it's usually like as a question, like, hey, if a solar flare happened, and just burned everything on Earth to nothing, right? Right? Um, And, you know, just stipulate for a second there's no life anywhere else, uh, intelligent life elsewhere in the universe just to make it simpler. It's doable if there is, but slightly more complicated. If all the life, if all the intelligent moral life in the universe just went solar flare, asteroid, whatever, then would there be any right and wrong anymore? And my answer to that is no. Right? Does it really matter how much of the rainforest we preserved if the whole rainforest goes up in a solar flare? Does it really matter how much Uh, the kid learned in seventh grade and that they had a nice time in seventh grade before the asteroid hit. And my answer to these questions are no, and I respect people whose answer is yes, it mattered because at the time, whatever, I don't buy that. I think the continuity matters. I think the preservation of um, intelligence and morality in the universe is a prerequisite for anything else to be right or wrong. Um, Because who is the, you know, moral agent? You know, I mean, who is evaluating and, and judging these things? And, you know, again, if you, there's a deity and, and such, if you believe that and with well codified rules, then that would be, that's an okay answer. Like, that's it's fine. That's a good answer, right? Um, in the absence of that, I think the survival and, you know, continued uh, thriving of uh, intelligent moral life is necessary. So I thought about that and I said, well, okay. I would like the things that I do. To make ever so slightly fractions of a percentage point increases in our chance, in our chances of survival and making, and I think we're in a pretty leveraged century. And I think individuals and strong teams, even very small ones, can potentially move the needle a lot. You know, so that's kind of the general direction I tack in, um, and what I think about is. What's going to make a really, really big difference? Certainly there's some engineering and certainly there's some science, but also like better norms and and, and structures in the world, more clear thinking, more logic, um, more, you know, applied game theory, which tends to strive for cooperation, um, behavior where the best outcomes in a lot of the standard game theory problems are cooperation, but the defaults are defection. Um, So I looked at that. That's the first major precept, and I don't always, every single day, get up and do whatever I think is going to do the most, but, uh, you know, monthly, I really try to, on a monthly level, move things forwards, even ever so slightly, and, uh, you know, who knows, maybe if things break right, maybe a lot. Then, the second rule, I've got some, i got a whole thing written out in logic and whatever, Um, second one's the other important one, that's the the 80-20 of my top two. I also have a second rule on there, I haven't ruled out that uh there might be something after this i haven't and you know i get some stick from this i have some friends that are like atheists that are like sebastian you really believe and i'm like come on and i know it's like the opposite of how a lot of the world works but like you know it's like not really cool um you know in in, in some of those crowds to even entertain the notion um of anything after life but I don't know, I haven't put the odds at zero, and maybe even quite a bit higher than zero. So, yeah, my second rule is train for infinity. So what I try to do, and i so often fall short of, it's, it's horrible, but, uh, but it's good, it's motivating, but it's horrible too, um, is, you know, really just treating this like, hey, if you're going to live like 10,000 years, and you're going to be evaluated fairly often, and like what you're doing really, really had a long, long, long-term difference, 10,000 years is easier to conceptualize then infinity right like because ten thousand years you actually just to think about it like that's a lot of blocks of 100 years you know what i mean that's a long time right so if there was something like that some infinity after this like how would we want to arrive there and you know places where there's a broad consensus among a lot of different moral and ethical structures and mainstream religions are like good places to start looking at um but also, you know, some, some kind of eccentric ones, you know. There's a a thing that was uh, started to go mainstream for a while. It was like a weird nerd thing for a while, so uh, I was into it as such. Um, but called the simulation theory. And this is argument that uh, if eventually there will be simulations of, of people in past eras, and they'll outnumber by a lot the people that are actually, like, lived through those eras, then statistically you're in a simulation. Something like that. Simulation argument kind of an interesting rabbit hole to go down. Don't let it mess with you at all like You woke up yesterday, you're gonna wake up tomorrow You know, it's life still exactly the same even as you get more insight into it if that's true But a lot of people that do the simulation argument don't go one step further and they say well Hey, this is like pretty high fidelity. This is like pretty high fidelity This is using a lot of processing power for the simulation people don't just simulate for the heck of it Why are they simulating and Okay, now we can look at why we do simulations and like think about them, right? So there's some like answers that are like for entertainment and there's some answers that are like to do experiments. I was making a joke during the pandemic that I hope this isn't like a infectious disease spread simulator that would be not great if like it keeps coming, right? But um, the most interesting one to me, like what are the most high fidelity, expensive interactive simulators are for? Training. Just throwing that out there, training. So a joke that we sometimes make in our friend group is like, hey, I'll, I'll see you when we wake up in the galactic fleet or whatever. <laughs> like we're all in like junior officer galactic fleet training. All right, I'm being a little weird and I'm joking around. But um, I do take into account that, hey, maybe something happens after this life and learning as much as possible, training, treating this as like a, a ground to learn all kinds of different skills and the ability to apply them and different types of knowledge that are, are useful and really getting a very, very good understanding of what's going on. Um, And then just as much as possible, shaping your own character to be the type of person that people would want to work with, want to be around, um, and would would respect and and engage with and admire. I think those are good things to strive for. Do I hit my standards all the time? No, Uh, it's a constant constant, uh, iteration. It's a constant process of falling short and looking to do better, right? But yeah, those are my top two. So in terms of religio, right? In terms of religio, um, yeah, my top two are like, hey, I want to do things that actually have an impact on our survival. And every now and then I've mentioned this to somebody and they've been like, that's very persuasive. Uh, Like what field is the most important one? And actually, I don't think it works like that. I think there's like probably like 30 to 70 that are credibly among the first rank of importance. Um... And then you should do just whatever you're most inclined to and most interested in those 30 to 70 if you held um, this worldview and this orientation. And even in fields that don't seem like they are, you know, sometimes, you know, an advance in pure entertainment might lead to improvements of hardware and, and, and things like that. You know, certainly the demand for better computer games pushed all sorts of hard technology forwards a lot. So sometimes there's a bit of an indirect path to some of the most uh, most important and useful useful stuff right? You know, Richard Feynman famously wrote about um, how doing some playing around led him to do some breakthrough physics. He's just playing around with physics problems that seem really basic, and that led to some breakthroughs. So if you add that, there you go. As for training for infinity, I don't know, it just seems like a good idea. I don't know, maybe the, uh, you know, maybe that's how, uh, maybe that's why people, people keep, keep, remaining a member of a of an organized religion it's like man if there's a one percent chance this eternity thing is true i better <laughs> take pascal's wager on it right but i don't know i uh, until you know from time to time somebody's like i'm like hey like why does anything exist doesn't i don't get it the null hypothesis would be that nothing exists right now like, oh, sometimes someone says like the big bang and i'm like okay yeah but where'd the stuff came from the bang? yeah yeah i know the big bang theory got it yeah but like where'd that stuff come from I don't know. I'm like, well, until that question's answered, at least. Um, I'm not ruling out that there was maybe something greater. Um, but that's me, and I'm certainly not. You know, I'll also end on the Churchill quote, a fanatic is one who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. Yeah, I'm probably capable of changing my mind, though I've thought a lot about it, but I'm certainly capable of changing the subject. So that's my quick take on that. To do a little recap, I gave you the Carlisle take that religio, right, is the thing, in Carlyle's words, the thing a man does practically believe, and this is often enough without asserting it to himself, much less to others, does practically lay to heart and know for certain concerning one's vital relations to this mysterious universe and duty and destiny here. In all cases, the primary thing creatively determines all the rest. I buy that. I think that's true. Um, and axiomatically, nothing matters. Also religio. I mean, there's like a orientation towards the universeness, if you want a word that doesn't have a r- religio in it. Then we looked at Tagmark, you know, the origin of goals and goal-directed behavior, and how it starts from physical laws of entropy and gravity, energy dissipation. It Seems like all the building blocks were there to make it possible, and then it started happening, leading up to more and more complex phenomenon, until ultimately, right. In fact, since our feelings implement merely rules of thumb that aren't appropriate in all situations, human behavior, strictly speaking, doesn't have a single well-defined goal at all. It's like, oh, Doc, Dr. Tegmark, why? Right? And so there's different ways to navigate there. But I think just understanding that's the problem space and refining it. I think looking at and analyzing one's own instincts, feelings, and intuition, basic Elemental personality characteristics to either do things harmonious with them or to realize that in this area it might be a stumbling block and needs to refinement and training and environment and structure and everything to work on Which is like a tough game that is like ideally not played if can be avoided, but as needed one does it um, And then yeah at some point uh, You know one adopts uh, You know some structure of hey what really matters um, either one that already exists, or or kind of synthesizes or or uh, derives um, theirs and lives by it. So, bit of one of the most abstract shows possible here, but hopefully very interesting. I'd like to say thank you for the question. And yeah, I think it's interesting to think about and to derive. Definitely recommend on Heroes. Bit of uh, tough Victorian English, but don't let it be intimidating. TechMark, on the other hand, despite being rather technical, is very, very readable. And he's got a lot of charts and graphs and stuff in there, so I wouldn't audiobook that one. I would, um, I would definitely do that um, on a, a paper book or a Kindle book so that you can uh, you know, look at all the illustrations and charts and stuff, some of which are, are quite good. Definitely both recommended. As always, thank you for listening. It's a pleasure, and I hope you're doing well in whatever you are up to this day, week, month, and year.